0: Everybody doing good today? So, I did say to the first service that we need 300 of them to move into either this service or the five o'clock service, which means we need about 50 to 100 of you to consider the five o'clock. And because we're all in this together, because um, I don't know if you know this, but the first service is claustrophobic. I mean, there are so many people here. Uh, in our overflow room, there could be another hundred or so people, and uh, we've never sought to become a big church, um, but this is what God has for us, uh, at least for this season. We're going to still get into the batter's box and, and, and take another swing at probably church planning when when that time is right, but that certainly isn't now. So, um, yeah, just talk to your friends, your family, and... and Ask God if that's something that you would uh, be led to do. Okay, we are finishing up the Sermon on the Mount. And especially when you consider this summer that we looked at the Beatitudes and then the Lord's Prayer, which are chunks of this sermon, we have been in this for, for quite a while. And hopefully, you're now seeing what this sermon is. And how important it is. I don't know if you remember Francis Schaeffer. Um, when I went to college, Francis Schaeffer was someone that I read a lot of his works, uh, listened to him. Uh, he, he was just a Christian who was so in the, in the game, engaging the world. Uh, he had this uh, youth hostel that he ran in Sweden called the Brief Fellowship which attracted not only Christian travelers, um, most of them younger at that time, but also agnostics and atheists, um, because they knew this to be a place where they could ask the deep questions of life. Um, And he was presenting uh, Christianity in a way that that, that people were just taking hold of it. But, um, you know, the 60s and the 70s, the time when his voice was so strong, you know, was a time that the world was coming out of two world wars, World War II being the big one, Uh, the evils of the Holocaust uh, were still fresh, Um, some of just the brutal dictatorships that killed millions of, of its own people were just fresh on everybody's mind, and it really caused Christians to be in retreat mode from the world, like just... Let's get out of this world. This world is a a bad place. Let's escape it and wait for heaven. And Francis Schaeffer just screamed at the church pretty much and said, no, you can't do that. And he called Christians to stop retreating and to enter every facet of culture, every nook and cranny uh, of our world and to engage it with the full force of Christ in us, the hope of glory. His big question that he asked was Christian, in light of this world, how then should we live in it? I think it's David's question in Psalm 11. David says, When the foundations are being destroyed, what should the righteous do? And these are great questions for us today. How then should we live? as the foundations of our world, age-old foundations are decaying and crumbling, and it seems like our world is descending in chaos. Christian, how then should we live? Answer? Sermon on the Mount. That's why this sermon needs to be precious to us. And today we come to its conclusion Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew 7, starting at verse 12, and if you can stand, we love to do that for the reading of God's Word. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many enter through it, but small is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life. Only a few find it. Watch out. Beware of false prophets. The word false there in in Greek is pseudo. Pseudo prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, drive out demons, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. This is God's word. Be seated. So, Jesus begins the, the conclusion to this sermon with maybe the most famous ethical statement ever uttered by human lips. What we know as the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Or maybe a, a clearer way of saying is treat others in the way that you would want to be treated. And I think we could ponder for hours what this means. I think we should. Because Jesus, he didn't just give us something to think about, he just summed up the law and the prophets with one statement. And the law and the prophets, if you're wondering what that is, that's their word for Bible. Bible. All that God in his word commands us to be and do, how we must walk out the text, Jesus sums it up in one statement, treat others as you would have them treat you. I think explaining the law and the prophets or God's word is what Jesus has been doing in this whole sermon. You've heard it was said, but I say to you, you've heard it was said this, but I say to you, he's he's taking the law and the prophets and and, and he's explaining them to us, not just so that we know what what, what it means, what, what God's word means, but more importantly, how we are to walk this out. Now when we read this, God's word, It can be intimidating, especially if we're doing it from this angle. What is it, God, that you're calling me to be? What is it that you're calling me to do? I mean, even just take the Ten Commandments. To a Jew, they look at God's word, what we call the Old Testament, because that's what God's word is at the time of Jesus. And they see 613 Commandments from God in terms of, of what we as God people, God's people are to be and to do. So the question in Jesus' day became Is there a greatest commandment? Is there, is there one commandment here that, that, that can sum up all the other commands? I think one of those summaries is found in Micah 6, verse 8. Um, He has shown you, O human, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. That is a summation of of, of the law and the prophets. Um, The the most popular one, already by the time of Jesus, one that Jesus himself affirms as the greatest summation of the law of the prophets is Shema, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, that's Deuteronomy 5, and then putting it with Leviticus 19, verse 18, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, this fulfills the law and the prophets. But now he's looking at this from a whole nother angle, and he's summarizing God's commands. He's boiling them down into this one statement, do unto others as you would have them do to you. That would change the world if we live that way. Now, here's what I find interesting. There's a rabbi that Jews to this day would, would say easily top 10 rabbi of all time. His name is Hillel, who lived a generation before Jesus. And listen to what he said just a couple of decades before Jesus is saying what we just read. He says, that which is hateful to you, do not unto another. This is the whole Torah. That's another word for law and the prophets. And he says, the rest is halakha, which we translate commentary, but the reason why I have the original language in there is because commentary to us is us thinking thoughts about the text. Halakha is their word for walk because Jewish people aren't just concerned with how to think rightly about the text. It's all, how do we walk it out? And Halal just said, I can sum the whole thing up in this statement. That which is hateful to you, do not do that to another this is the whole thing. Now, Hillel is looking at it from the angle of what is hateful, hurtful, uh, maybe offensive. Um, whatever that is, don't do that. Imagine if we live that way. All of us. That too would change our world. But here's where I think Hillel's version falls short of Jesus' version. Um, Hillel's version does not start with others. It starts with me. It starts with what's offensive to me, what is hurtful to me. Then I am not to do that to another person, which means that I could actually fulfill uh, Hillel's golden rule by simply avoiding people, or at least avoiding people that I want to hurt. Jesus turns this whole thing on its head. His version actually starts with other people. He says, do unto other people, which is this command, it's command form, to engage others, to treat others as we would want to be treated. So in other words, I can only fulfill Jesus' version of this is if I'm moving towards people, not away from people. Now imagine that kind of world. A world where people are moving towards each other, engaging each other, and we all know how we want to be treated, how we want to be accepted, forgiven, how we want to be loved, how we want to be believed in, how we want people to speak truth to us, how uh, we don't want to be judged, how we want to be blessed, and how we want to be respected and honored. And we want this from people that we trust, people that we know have integrity, people who are Acting and treating us us this way, not for themselves, but because of the the very people that they are and and, and what they want to do for us. And you could say that's what the whole Sermon on the Mount is about. It's how we are to do unto others as we would want them to do for ourselves. Now Jesus brings his sermon home. Jesus never preaches a sermon to just hear himself talk. Every time Jesus preaches, he demands a response. Not an emotional one, not a momentary one. He demands a total life response. And Jesus is going to now make use of some profound imagery to not only lay out what the response is, but the stakes. Because like the choice now is ours and the choice we make, the stakes are so high. So in verses 13 to 14, he gives us this, this imagery of two gates that lead to two different paths or two different roads. Um, these two gates represent our lives. The paths represent the direction of our lives, the, 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 the place that we have placed our life. And, and one path is wide, and it's widely traveled by almost everybody. And it's traveled by everybody because it's it's a life of ease and comfort. But it leads to destruction. The other path is narrow and hard. In fact, hard here means to, to be full of affliction. This path is, is, is difficult. It's hurtful. Which is why only a few, says Jesus, walk it. But Jesus says this path leads to life. And in the original language, the Greek, there are two words for life. There's the word bios, from which we get the word biology, which is the study of of, of living things, and and that's what life means. It it means uh, to define something that's alive, that's living and breathing and existing. Uh, But the Greeks also understood that they needed another word to kind of describe this quality of life. Like, how do we describe uh, life to its fullest, life in abundance, to be alive, that's zoe. And that's the word Jesus uses here. Zoe. Start asking yourself, what are these two paths? What path is your life on? Now, the second imagery that Jesus uses is in verses 15 to 20, And it's of two kinds of trees, and these two trees represent two kinds of prophets, uh, two kinds of messengers. And while prophet is an official calling placed on a select few people, um, it's also an informal calling that's placed on everyone who belongs to God. They were all to be a nation of priests, pastors, and prophets so Jesus is using this imagery to say, beware of the kind of prophets that you listen to and follow, but maybe even more importantly, also be aware of the kind of prophet you are. Now this tree imagery, I think, is, is powerful because, and Jesus is flushing this out, any two trees can look the same. From all appearances, they can both look healthy, they can both bear fruit, just like the appearance of two people can look the same. But beneath the appearance, one can be bad, one can be good. In fact, the word for bad here is the word poisonous. And how do we know? You know, in a world of so many fakes, phonies, fake messengers, fake news, fake people. How do we know if someone is fake? And Jesus says, look at the fruit. Because a tree can't pretend to be something that it isn't. A a, a tree can't fake to be healthy. A tree can't create this false narrative or manipulate uh, a, a situation I mean, we are simply going to know if a tree is healthy or bad simply by its fruit. And Jesus using this is saying the same with people. The fruit of a person's life will tell us everything about a person. Now, here's the interesting thing about fruit fruit takes a lot of time to produce. This reminds me of what my father in law has oftentimes said time and truth go hand in hand, think about that. In other words, in time, the truth of who we are and what we are will always surface. And that can be scary, or it can be encouraging, depending on if you're a good tree or a bad tree, because time will tell. So this begs this question. What kind of tree are you? How do you know if you're a bad tree? How do you know if you're a good tree? What kind of fruit are you bearing? Again, Jesus says the stakes are high because in verse 19, he says, every bad tree will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These are powerful, powerful images Let's flush out the answers. What is the narrow path? Well, here's where I think a Sunday school answer works. Jesus. <laughs> you know, a kid in Sunday school, every time the question's asked, they raise their hand and say, Jesus. And uh, that certainly applies here. Jesus is the narrow path. Um, the narrow path is, is the path that Jesus walked. It's, it's the path that he's calling us to walk. The narrow path is the Sermon on the Mount. This sermon lays out the path that Christ walked, and it's the path that he's calling his followers to walk, which is why this sermon needs to be so precious to us, why we need to digest it, learn it, know it, love it, so we can walk it out. That's why Jesus ends his sermon with with a final image, and we didn't get to this part, but it's an image of a house, and the house represents a person's life, and any builder will tell you this, um, that a strong foundation is is everything to a house. Uh, Without a strong foundation, a house is going to collapse. It's it's, it's going to crumble. Same with a life. Foundation is absolutely everything. That's why Jesus says what he says in verse 24. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, Jesus is not content to just let us hear another sermon. And some of you are wondering, like, why is my life not changing? Why why I look around me and I see people changing, I see marriages changing, I see lives changing. And I've been going to church my whole life. I've been hearing sermon after sermon after sermon. I don't care if you've been hearing sermons every Sunday for 15 years, if all you're doing is hearing it, it's not gonna change anybody. That's why Jesus is going for a response. The person who hears my words and puts them into practice. And here it's like Jesus would be saying, because I don't have time to explain all this. But they were literally rolling when they when they heard the example of what he just gave. It would be if he were here today. It'd probably be like him saying, it'd be like someone who uh, went out and built their house on Lake Michigan during the winter. <laughs> And the spring came and the ice melted and the, and the house sank. And that's the same thing he's saying here. And, and that's anyone who doesn't put their life in Christ and listen to his words and make Jesus' words their life. It's your house on the rock. Every time I take... Groups to Israel. One of the things I ask him before the trip, I tell them the nature of this trip. I said, for, for, for the totality of the trip, from the beginning to the end, not any time before or after, um, I'm asking that I be your rabbi, and that you park your life behind my life, and you trust me and you follow me. And um, it's not because I'm on a power trip or anything like that. It's Simply because I want to give people a firsthand experience of what it's been like to be a first-century disciple disciple, um, and so I, I take them the hard path. I take them to narrow places, uh, places where they literally want to kill me sometimes, um, and it's difficult, and it hurts. It's crazy. I think anyone who's gone on this trip will attest to the zoe, the life that we experience on the narrow path. Even though it's hard, even though it hurts, it's a path that leads to life. And at some point in the trip, We'll come across uh, an ancient Roman city because Rome, when they're doing empire, they're planning cities all over the world, which includes Jesus' world. And uh, in Roman cities, you could see Roman roads. <laughs> and Roman roads aren't those narrow, stony, difficult paths. They're wide, and they are broad, and they are flat, and they are Easy and they are comfortable, and they are surrounded with everything from theaters to arenas to shopping malls because Rome is more than a military might. Rome is a culture, it's a force that promised a gospel of a good, comfortable life, prosperity, and pleasure primarily through sex, money, power. And we know this world. We know this road. We know it's still just as seductive and as enticing as it has ever been. And these two roads couldn't be more different. I think Jesus has this road in mind, uh, the the broad road in chapter 6 when he says, do not be like the pagans um, because they're so consumed with the things of this world, material things, what you eat, what you wear, um, money, all of this stuff. Jesus says, stop making your life about these things. Don't worry about these things. Don't place your identity. Don't get your worth and satisfaction from these things. Uh, These things are are trivial, you have a heavenly father who loves you, cherishes you. Seek first his kingdom. What road are you on? Honestly. You know how you can know? What do you worry about? that's why Jesus talks so much about worry in that part of the sermon, because worry will always lead us to who or what we're really living for. It'll lead us to who we we truly love, what we truly love. Uh, It'll lead us to what we've put our hope in. It'll lead us to what we truly worship. What are you worried about today? Or take all of worry's siblings, like anxiety and fear. Trace those things back. And then ask yourself, do I love God or, or do I love comfort? Do I hunger and thirst for righteousness or do I hunger and thirst for stuff? Am I seeking this world and all that it offers or am I seeking first Christ and his kingdom? What road are we walking? Jesus says, it can't be both. This is either Or we have to choose, and he says the stakes are so high. It's the choice between life and death. Now, what about the two trees? Obviously, we know the good tree is Jesus. Just look at him. Look at his fruit. He is the oak of righteousness. He came to this world. He preaches even the sermon that we just studied. To show us how we can be a good tree, an oak of righteousness, that produces the kind of fruit that he produced? What about the bad tree? Now, this was my shock this week as I was studying, because I've preached this sermon wrong quite a bit. I've always put the bad tree with the broad road and grouped that all together and made that the same person or same kind of person, um, the bad people versus the good tree, the good people. So I started studying this. Verse 15 tells us the bad tree are sheep. Sheep in the Bible always symbolizes God's people. Verse 21 says, these two are people who prophesy. means they love God's word verse 22 says they cast out demons in Jesus name (laughs) which means they do things for Jesus and on behalf of Jesus and to top it all off in verse 21 they they declare Jesus to be Lord but it's not just Lord it's Lord Lord and any time you see this doubling in scripture because it's everywhere, Jacob, Jacob, Moses, Moses, Mary, Mary, Martha, Martha, Absalom, Absalom, Saul, Saul, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This doubling is a way of expressing deep affection and passion. See, now we're stepping into what I think is some pretty scary stuff for us. These are people who express passion for Jesus, who might raise their hands in worship, pray passionate prayers. I mean, from all appearances, the the bad tree looks just like the good tree. Yet Jesus is going to look at the bad tree and one day say to that bad tree, I never knew you. That should stop all of us in our tracks. I never knew you. We never connected. We never had a relationship. I think we can all see the difference between someone who's parked their life on the broad road and they're living that that path out in their life, and someone who's parked their life on the narrow road and they're, they're walking that path. But now we're stepping into some territory of someone who, by all appearances, looks like a Christian, acts like a Christian, talks like a Christian, does Christian things. Is called a Christian. And we see both the bad tree and the good tree pray, they both give to the poor, they fast, they both are deeply involved in ministry, they both strive to obey God, they go to church. They're both kind to their neighbors. On the outside, they both look like sheep. So what's the difference between the bad tree and the good tree? It's the difference between religion and Christianity. Because religion isn't Christianity. And Christianity isn't religion. Jesus didn't come to this world to establish religion, he actually came to the world to destroy it. And you ask, well, how is Christianity different than religion? Well, I don't have all day, so I'll boil this down into, I'll get, I'll get right to the heart of it. The difference is in the why. Why? Why does a religious person give to the poor? Why do they pray? Why do they do anything in God's name? Remember when we were in Matthew 6 and Jesus says, he gives the answer to this. They give to the poor, why? To be honored. In fact, the word for honor there in, in the Greek is doxa, which means glory. They give to the poor, which is why they do everything that they do religiously and spiritually for personal glory. Now, see, this is, if you take Rome, and all that Rome was, and you take religion, and all that religion is, on the appearance, those two things could not look more differently, especially morally and spiritually. But when you get down to the root, it's the same. Rome does everything for glory, the religious person does everything for glory. I can love the world and the stuff of this world for my own glory. I can even love God and the stuff of God for my own glory. And see what we're talking about is the part of the tree that no one can see. We're talking about the roots. By all appearances, a bad tree can look like a good tree. Think about how hideous this is. Think about just in any relationship. When we fake to love someone, when we're really just loving them to use them. Now imagine when we do that with God. We use them. We just use them for our glory, our gain. Like, don't you think it'd be better if we were just godless, immoral, greedy, selfish, narcissistic, worldly people? Than to actually be someone who goes to church, prays, gives helps. But if you get to the root of that, it's not because we love God, it's because we love ourselves. There's a reason why Jesus looked at the most religious people of his day and said, do you know that the tax collectors and the prostitutes, the sinners, are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you? And I think living in a town like Grand Rapids a town that is steeped in religion. We need to wrestle with this. Verse 15, you know what Jesus calls them? He calls them ferocious wolves. This word for ferocious here literally means to to blackmail. In other words, these are people who use religion to gain leverage over other people. why Frederick Nietzsche was right when he calls religion just a power play. He said religion is just a way to get power. It's it's a way for people to exalt themselves and to hold power over other people. And I think it, it can be even worse than this. I think religious people, too, don't only use their leverage against other people, but they use their goodness and their morality and their spirituality as leverage against God. God, look at everything that I have done for you. You owe me now the life that I want. Years ago, I got this email from a young lady in our church. By the way, when I get an email like this, you just need to know. I'm not flippant with it in in any way um, because this girl's pouring out her heart. She says, Rod, God's grace, love, and forgiveness are all amazing concepts that I know to be true, but realities that I will admit I've never fully received in my life. I suppose a lifetime of always striving to do the right thing and be the best at everything, has caused me to view my relationship with God in a distorted way. I struggle every day with feelings of inadequacy. If only I was smarter. If only, oh man. If only I was better at soccer. If only I was more social. If only I loved people better. Then and only then would I get the acceptance and love that I desire from friends, family, and yes, even from God. It's always been what I do or what I don't do. Even now, I feel as if I'm seeking a formula, so to speak, as how I can fix this. I don't know how it's to approach the situation. Rod, I am tormented by this. I am overwhelmed with my failures. This person just expressed what thousands of church-going people in this community feel. It's bondage to religion. Religion is all about me. Do you know how many times she said, I, 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 I? I did this, I need to do this, I'm this, I need to be the best. That's what religion does, it makes it all about me. If I'm good enough, if I perform well enough, that then I can get God to like me and accept me. So it, it, it's, it's this performing to get something, it's, it's this proving of myself to be approved. That's how we grow up pleasing our parents, our teachers, our coaches, our pastors. And this all gets translated then with God. And what's underneath all of this? What's driving it? And she said it herself. She said I'm someone who feels deeply inadequate and overwhelmed every day with my failures. That's where the game of religion ends. This is why the religious person craves glory. It's because they lack it. And they're starving for it. And they have no internal sense of of the worth and value. And so everything they do is about getting that worth and value that they so lack. So ministry and helping, giving, praying. It isn't about serving God and others. It's all about them. Do you know the first thing we need to do when we come to Christ is lay down our religion? And now we've come full circle to the first words of the sermon when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed is the one who comes to me empty handed with nothing for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We need to give up our religion. We we, we need to give up making this about ourselves and trying to prove ourselves and trying to leverage this goodness against God and against other people of of always trying to perform it um, at, at a level that will get God to accept us and like us. Just come to him with all our inadequacies, all our failures. We come to him poor with nothing. Tim Keller loves to quote this hymn. I looked for it and I couldn't find it, so I only have it from him, but it's cast your deadly doing down. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. See, a Christian is someone who knows glory on the inside. And why do we know this glory? Why does our life ooze this glory? Listen listen to what Jesus says in his last prayer that he prayed before he was crucified in John 17, verse 22. He says to his father, I have given them the glory, the glory that you gave me. The same glory that the Father gave the Son, the Son gives to us. A Christian isn't someone who is seeking glory. A Christian is someone who already has it. We have the glory of the Father filling us. which is why we don't do the golden rule for our sake. We do it for someone else's sake. We don't obey God or or even live out this sermon um, because it serves us, because it glorifies us. We do it for the sake of others and it glorifies God. We do it because we love him. And why do we love him? Because we know we're not good and he is. Look at him. He didn't come as a ravenous wolf. He came as a lamb, as a slaughtered lamb who gave up everything for us. And when we see God in Christ giving up everything for us, how much he loves us, cherishes us, that's what fills us with inner glory. And until we have that, we will default to religion because we're starving for it. I love what John Bunyan writes. You talk about a guy with a testimony of living, I mean, a very bad life, an evil life. And he came to Christ and he was set free. And he describes this experience. He says, one day I was passing through a field and suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. John, your righteousness is in heaven. And he said for the first time, I saw with the eyes of my heart Jesus Christ at God's right hand and there was my righteousness so that wherever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, John, you lack righteousness, for it was always right before him in Christ. And moreover, I saw that my good frame of heart could not make my righteousness better, nor a bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Throw yourself upon the rock. And that rock is Christ. God, thank you for showing us life, the abundant life, the full life, life that is in you, going your way, walking your path. And yet, God, this is not about us, and this is where this thing gets so dangerous. This could just be another way for us to just strive more and perform it better. And God, that is not your way. God, may we repent, not just of our badness, but God, may we be people who see how our goodness, how that gets in the way of us throwing ourselves on you. Jesus, you are everything. And may that include, may you be our righteousness. In your name, amen.